continue on in Ephesians. We are in chapter 3, walking through verses 1 through 13. And before I talk about the theme, um, let me just have a little fun with you. Let me ask you a, a couple questions. How many of you like it when a preacher preaches on the promises of God? And, and when you hear about the promises of God, how many of you are like, yes, I want to know what those are, right? So like one of you, two of you, three, okay, now, see, you're, you're engaging, I like this. And, and most of us do, we want to know the promises of God, right? Then a follow-up question, if they come from God, are his promises good? Yes? Any no's? Anyone say no? You guys are sure, aren't you, that God's promises are good? Well, they are good, right? Um, but let me show you some promises that we're going to cover uh, a little bit tonight. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to read a little bit of scripture to you from all over the Bible. Um, here, here's a good one. I love this promise in particular. Um, if you're a people pleaser, you'll enjoy this as well. Matthew 10, 22. Uh, you, his disciples, Jesus is talking to, will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Doesn't sound very fun. How about um, this? You know when you place your faith in Jesus and like all of your family drama and your relationships with friends and loved ones, everything just works out perfect. Like that's why a lot of people want Jesus, right? Here's a wonderful promise in relation to that. Luke 21 verses 16 and 17, but you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all. In case you forgot from the previous verse. You will be hated by all because of my name. Doesn't sound funny. Let's get away from our family and friends. Let's go be missionaries, right? Paul says in Romans 8, 36, here's a promise for you missionaries. Just as it is written for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered sheep to be slaughtered. This is getting good. How many of you like the promises of God? Should I ask that again? And you were sure they were all good, right? Let's, um, let's not be missionaries so much anymore because that's scary. Let's just, be, let's just live quiet, devoted lives to Jesus where we don't have to get in anyone's way or put ourselves out there like that. Well, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is getting worse. You can't even hang out on the sidelines and not suffer. Here we go. Um, at least we don't have to suffer a ton because, right, Jesus suffered for our sake, right? Philippians 1, 29, Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Man, at least we don't have to die, right? Revelation two ten. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. Be faithful until, until death, and I will give you the crown of life. How many of you want to sign up for this? Here's a good invitation. 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Welcome to the Bible. That's a far cry from your best life now. The Bible talks a lot about suffering. And I love the Bible for a lot of reasons, but one reason is that it's not just full of truth. It's very honest and very open. And like life, suffering isn't just in one chapter or season. It's throughout the whole thing. We all suffer. 
And to be in Christ, to find your identity in Christ, is to understand that you are, if you're a Christian, by definition, a suffering servant. We talked about, on Sunday, Pastor Andy preached out of Isaiah 53, the famous passage, right? Jesus is the suffering servant. He bore our sins. He he was stricken. He was afflicted by God. He was oppressed. He was crushed. He was bruised for our iniquities. He says in in Mark, Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In John 15, it tells us that we have to abide in Jesus, that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. The Christian walk is to be one with Christ, not to get God to do what you want or to follow your plans, but for you to die to yourself, to pick up your cross and daily choose. I'm following Jesus. I'm not trying to get Jesus to follow me. And to abide in Christ means that you, if you're going to be unified in him, you are going to experience much of what he experienced because he asks you to do much of what he's done. And if you don't understand suffering as a part of the walk with Jesus for a Christian, you'll never understand the beauty of his suffering on the cross. He invites you intimately into his sufferings on the cross by suffering with him and for him. You see a disconnect between Christians in America and those all around the world, many who die for their faith, who are persecuted for their faith, and yet they have a joy that some of us don't have. And we wonder, how in this country do we not have the same joy that they have in war-torn countries where they're being slaughtered for Jesus? And you say, maybe they know something we don't know. But if you, if you dig into Scripture, you will find over and over and over in the New Testament, suffering in the Christian life, one and the same. Now, the beauty is one day there will be no suffering. But until then, there will be much suffering. And signing up to follow Jesus actually signs you up for more suffering. And it changes the type of suffering. And the promise of the gospel isn't that you can escape suffering. Some people want that. Some people come to church because they're in pain, they're in heartache, they want comfort, they want relief. And we in our country, we, are, we love safety, we love security, we love comfort. And the Bible does promise comfort, but it's a different kind of comfort. It's not a comfort that says, stay in your old life and do what you want and I'll just try to keep you safe. It's a come and follow me through the desert through pain and through torment and and do what I ask you to do and you will be persecuted and yet you will have a comfort that transcends all understanding. And so if you don't ever get outside of your comfort zone and following Jesus, you're not going to have the comfort that Jesus promises. promise of the gospel isn't to escape suffering, it's to trust that Jesus' suffering matters and therefore your suffering matters. Paul is going to be very open and honest with us in this passage and he's going to show us of his suffering and why he suffered and I think a lot of us are going to be able to relate to his suffering. And he's going to give us four things that we're going to walk through in relation to your identity, my identity as a suffering servant. So, now that you guys are all psyched up and you are ready for this, you are encouraged. Let's jump in. Verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, For this reason, so remember chapter 2 talked about Jews and Gentiles becoming one, 
in Christ. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. We'll stop right there. The first thing we see is the position of a suffering servant. By position, I mean this is your foundation. This is your disposition. This is when you wake up in the morning, you're not wondering to yourself, should I serve God in any way today? No, you just do it. It just flows through your veins, and you think, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to do what he tells me to do. And it's just a matter of, what's he going to ask me to do today? So the key words here would be, I, this is Paul. He's saying, I'm a prisoner, both physically, he's in prison in Rome, right? Some believe that um, they have found uh, not necessarily the prison that he was in, but uh, prisons that were similar, archaeologists have found, and they basically are just kind of mud holes. We call it um, house arrest. Scholars will say he was basically on house arrest for a couple years in in Rome, um, but it wasn't just roaming around a palace, right? It, it was it was not good. It was horrible. And he says, I'm doing this because of Jesus. I'm a prisoner. So you might not be a physical prisoner right now, but spiritually we are slaves to Christ. We go from being slaves to sin, prisoners of our old life, to slaves to Christ, prisoners for Christ. Spiritually, you are bound. You're going to do. When you sign up to follow Jesus, it's not a question, will you do what he asks? You just do it. On behalf of you, Gentiles. So he's doing this not only for Jesus, but it's also on behalf of the Gentiles. That's the ministry he was called to. Now, let's talk about suffering for a little bit. One thing you'll notice um, in your walk with Jesus is that maturity sometimes um, can be seen in the questions that you ask in life that you'll see your questions start to change. You'll go from, uh, in some cases, asking, why, 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 why God did you do this? Why God did you allow this? Why God are you not there for me? Why, why, why to who? Who is Jesus? Who am I in light of Jesus? Uh, who, who can I bless through my suffering? How, 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 how can this bring God glory? And you start to find yourself going from the why, why, whys to the who, who, who's and the how can this bring God glory? Let's talk about the why and the who for a little bit. Um, there's, a, there's a pastor who's um, been influential in, in my discipleship, and he, um, he wrote 14 things. I heard a sermon of his once. 14 uh, different types of suffering in the Bible, and we will move very quickly through this. I'm just going to steal it from him. Any decent preacher is going to be stealing a lot of stuff from other decent preachers. That's kind of how it works. And so let me just walk through um, a whole bunch of different types of suffering, because the more you understand why we suffer, the more you'll be able to not only understand God's work in your own life, but to be empathetic towards other people and their suffering. Number one, Edemic. So this is the type of suffering that happens because the world is broken, right? Sin has entered the world via Adam and Eve, and and now it is broken. This is why we have earthquakes. This is why we have cancer. This is why people grow old. This is why they wear out. This is why they die. This is why people shoot other people. And, And drunk drivers drive drunk. And they they hurt people. This is why brokenness exists. No matter how much you follow Jesus, as long as you're on earth, you will experience the consequences of this brokenness. To some degree, will it change? Yeah, 
because the evil doesn't necessarily come from you the more that you find yourself devoted to Christ, but you can't avoid the brokenness of this world. Thankfully, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth one day, and there won't be that brokenness. Number two, punishment for non-Christians. The Bible speaks of a suffering that's simply eternal punishment. There is a hell, and those not found in Christ will go to hell, and they will be separated eternally from God. Number three, consequential. This is you reap what you sow kind of suffering. This is what we covered in Ecclesiastes for a whole bunch of months in a row not too long ago, is you can live wisely in Christ or foolishly outside of Christ. And to be wise means that, that, that you live in a way that you don't have to deal with a bunch of consequential suffering. In other words, if you, um, if you eat horribly and you don't take care of your body, you're going to have health concerns. If you um, uh, like to spend money more than you should on things that you shouldn't, be buying, you might be a slave to debt. That's a consequence. If you don't wake up on time because you like to sleep in, you might get fired. If you don't do your homework, you might get bad grades. This is you reap what you sow. And God says, if you follow me and you grow in Christ and you become more like him and less like your old life, you can avoid some of the consequential suffering out there. Number four, demonic. There's Satan and there are demons and they don't like you and they don't want you to follow Jesus. And they know all about him and they know about you. And Ephesians 6 is going to talk a lot about spiritual warfare. And sometimes the more you find yourself devoted to Christ, the more spiritual warfare you start to experience. But spiritual warfare can be anything from, um, if you're not a believer, demonic possession. You see that in scripture. Or demonic oppression. You see that even in the lives of believers. You might have n- negative thoughts. You might have accusations in, in, in your mind. You might have um, the, the enemy lying to you. You might find yourself in spiritual bondage where you find habitually you are struggling in the flesh and you're having a hard time to follow Jesus and be empowered by his spirit. That happens. Number five, victim suffering. Sometimes people sin against you and sometimes um, you suffer even when you didn't do anything wrong. Sometimes little kids are abused by adults and they didn't deserve it. Sometimes men and women abuse each other, not because someone was egging it on, but because evil people do evil things. These are the hard kinds of suffering to stomach, but it happens and you see it in the Bible. Number six, collective. Sometimes you suffer because you're part of a larger group of people who's suffering. If you're in a war-torn country or nation, uh, you might suffer because you're just part of that nation. If you're part of an ethnicity or a gender, you might experience, uh, and you are both, uh, racism or sexism. The whole group suffers, and so you suffer. Number seven, disciplinary. God's a good father. Good fathers, as Hebrew says, discipline their kids. Sometimes God will not punish you, but he will discipline you for the sake of maturity. He wants you to grow. Number eight, vicarious suffering. Sometimes people will hate you, not because of you or your personality, but because of God in you. I learned this early in ministry. Sometimes people would say things to me and I could tell they were almost looking through me. They were angry at me, but it wasn't because of my personality. It was because I was preaching Jesus. And I saw that. Um, now, sometimes they just don't like me. <laughs> sometimes they just don't like my personality. 
And I got to make sure that if they're going to hate something in me, hate Jesus. Um, don't let me be a hindrance to preaching the gospel. Obviously, I want them to love Jesus, but I want them to hear the gospel. Number nine, empathetic. Sometimes you hurt because someone you love hurts. This is Paul and most of his letters. He's writing to churches and he says, I love you. I think about you. I pray for you. Lots of prayer requests in the church when it comes to empathetic suffering. We all have loved ones who are hurting. Number 10, testimonial suffering. Sometimes we suffer simply for the sake of sharing Jesus on a larger platform. I've told the story before. I'll rifle through it very quickly. When we went to Nebraska and we were looking for a building to meet as uh, we started the new church plant, um, we put a deposit down on one building, but we had to get permits through the city. The city denied these permits, made me come and spend more money and more time talking to the city council and all the bigwigs in town. And I didn't understand why God was having us do this. This seemed like the perfect building. But I quickly found out they weren't giving us the permits, but they were giving me a stage. And so I came to their city council meetings. And on a couple occasions, I shared Jesus with all of them. And everyone in town was going to hear it. And they wrote it down in the newspaper. And it was on the front page of the newspaper. So a little church of 10 could preach the gospel to the whole city. Why are you doing this, God? Maybe the platform's going to get bigger. Number 11, providential suffering. Sometimes we suffer um, intentionally. Sometimes your life is going okay, and then the preacher says, you know what? We need to make disciples because that's what Jesus says. Share your faith with someone. Go out there and put yourself out there. And sometimes you go from being comfortable to intentionally suffering for the sake of others seeing you step up and stand up for Christ. Sometimes God uses people in the Bible who are suffering so that others, like a Job, others can see, wow, you're standing firm in the midst of all this pain. And it brings people to Jesus. And number thir- or excuse me, number 12, preventative suffering. Sometimes God lets you suffer a lesser suffering to keep you from a larger suffering. Right? So sometimes you feel a pain in your side so that you go to the doctor before your appendix bursts. Sometimes you feel a little pain in your lower back or in your chest and you're short of breath a little bit before you have the heart attack. Sometimes um, you look back and, and you're listening to Garth Brooks as you're driving home from work and you hear this song about unanswered prayers and you think, wow, thank God I did not marry that boyfriend or girlfriend from high school. That would have been horrible. But in the moment, you wanted to marry him, right? Breaking up was a lesser pain than what would have happened if you would have married him. Number 13, mysterious suffering. Sometimes uh, we just don't know. We don't know. In Romans, Paul says, who, rhetorically, who can know the mind of the Lord? Not me. Sometimes God is just God, and you, you got to get good at telling people, I don't know. Instead of saying, well, I can tell you exactly why you're suffering. Sometimes none of us know. And number 14, apocalyptic suffering. Uh, In the end, um, you see in Revelation, there's going to be a lot of suffering. In the tribulation, as Jesus comes back, as things come to a close, um, it's going to be a time of suffering for some. And it won't be good. Here's the bigger question. As you go from the why... Why? Why? Recognizing it could be one or many of those things, or it could be stuff that wasn't even on that list. 
you go to the who. Paul is saying, for this reason, I, Paul, I'm a prisoner. He knows why he's suffering because he preached Jesus. But who are you suffering for? Who are you suffering for? Does your suffering matter? Is it worth it? It does matter in the sense that God, pain is pain and God knows and he's empathetic towards your pain. But are you using your pain for his glory? Who is Jesus? Jesus is a suffering servant. Who am I? I am a suffering servant. And when I follow him, who can I bless because of my pain? Sometimes your most painful moments in life are the biggest encouragements to other people. And you start to see your suffering different. So who can you suffer for so that they can know Jesus? Paul suffered for the Gentiles so that they would know Jesus. Who can you suffer for? What people group, what person in your life, what family member can you get uncomfortable for so that they can hear the good news of Jesus? Paul's showing us what it means to be in the position of a suffering servant. Verses 2 through 6. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Second thing we see, we know the position of a suffering servant, but the preaching of a suffering servant. What's your message? One of the themes throughout all of Ephesians is the word mystery. It's mentioned seven times, and several of those times are right here in chapter 3. The mystery he talks about. Paul's saying, overall in these verses, he's saying, listen, I want you to know something. I'm suffering, but I'm suffering for you. It's for your sake. Some of us, we get so consumed in our own suffering because we're thinking about ourselves. And we're thinking, why is this happening to me? And so often God's saying, you know what? I know that you're feeling pain, but this actually doesn't have much to do with you. How many times have you suffered where your suffering actually didn't have much to do with you? It didn't have much to do. I mean, Jesus' death wasn't wasn't about Jesus deserving death. It was, it was about us. It was for the Father, to his glory. If it was about Jesus, he was perfect and holy. He wouldn't have had to die, right? He chose to. The Father told him to. And Paul's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm suffering for you. How can you use your suffering to help others come to Jesus? This is the gospel. Jesus suffered for us, and we find joy in suffering for him. We want other people to know Jesus. Paul's saying, that's what I'm giving my life to. And remember, prior to salvation, Paul hated the Gentiles. He wasn't just a Jew. He was like, a, he was a Pharisaical Jew. He was, he was as religious as it comes. He was born in a great household. He was raised and taught by good rabbis. He had it all together. He despised the Gentiles as much as a Jew was going to despise Gentiles. And yet, remember in his conversion back in Acts, Jesus says to Ananias, go, go talk to this guy named Paul, right? And 
Ananias is like, eh, I'm kind of unsure how this is going to go. He, he kind of hates us. And then Jesus tells him what? I'm going to show him how much he's going to have to suffer for me in my name. And he sends him to a group of people. His whole ministry, he goes and he talks to Jews, but his whole ministry is actually to the Gentiles. And oftentimes, if you read in his letters, the Jews hate Paul. They're ticked off at him. Picture that. Picture reaching a group of people that your family despises and that you grew up despising. And so your family is always getting on to you because you're reaching out to them. I remember, you know, when you go through stages in life, you often despise the stage you just went to and you idolize the stage that you're going into. And I remember after I got out of high school um, and I was in college, I despised teenagers because I was the worst teenager of all, right? I, I was the biggest punk, the most annoying guy out there. And then when Jesus saved me at 22, the first people group he had me go reach was at the juvenile detention center. And so every Tuesday night I would go there and I would preach the gospel with an older man. And those kids treated us like junk. And they asked some questions like, why does God kill babies? And then when we would talk through it, like, oh, God, I don't know how this all works. And then, and then they, wouldn't, they just didn't care. They didn't want to be there, but they were in juvie. They, <laughs> they couldn't go anywhere. And there was a lot of weeks where I thought, gosh, these little punks. But yet my heart broke for them. I found myself, why do I like now and I love the people that I once just despised? Do you care about lost people? That's a legit question. We talk about this challenge with going and sharing the gospel and putting the little lights on the tree. Like, do you feel more guilt in evangelism or love in evangelism? Is it driven by guilt or is it driven by love? Charles Spurgeon, many of you know, the great British preacher, he said, the Holy Spirit will move them, so the lost, by first moving you. If you can rest without their being saved, they will rest too. But if you are filled with an agony for them, if you cannot bear that they should be lost, if you will soon find that they are uneasy, you will soon find that they are uneasy too. I hope you will get into such a state that you will dream about your child or about your hearer perishing for lack of Christ and start up at once and begin to cry, Oh God, give me converts or I die. Then you will have converts. Do you care about lost people? And if so, what do you actually tell them? In these verses, it says that Paul taught the mystery. What's the mystery? What's the mystery of Christ? Verse 6 says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. So they get the inheritance of Christ. They're members of the same body, so they're part of the family of God with Jews and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The big idea, the, the issue was not, will Gentiles, will non-Jews be saved? Because the Bible in the Old Testament speaks in a couple occasions to that. The big, crazy, can't even wrap my mind around it, is that Jews and Gentiles would be one. That's what they struggled with the most. That's what Jews said, yeah, so comfortable. Like God can save them one day. Some of the prophets in the Old Testament talked about that, but as long as they stay on their side of the room. But God's like, no, 
I'm going to save them, and y'all are going to be just alike. You're going to be part of the same family. You can't escape each other. Your weird cultures are going to have to blend, and you're going to find yourselves loving the people you once hated. And he's saying this mystery. There's a time where people didn't know that. In the Old Testament, they didn't know it was going to be quite like this. And he says, that's what I get to preach. That's what I get to preach. Jesus is a mystery to people. You ever just wonder to yourself? Like, you ever, I mean, if you just get out of la-la land for a second, I know this is so easy to, um, for me in particular, to, to almost pretend like there's not lost people in my family <laughs> um, because you don't want them to go to hell. But like, if you, just, if you just really think about it, and you're like, well, as much as one man can tell whether another man knows the Lord and sees evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life, um, let me look at my family. And like, if you really ask yourself this question, what is my family? What is my friends? What is my husband? What is my wife? What is my mom? What is my dad? What do they think about Jesus? What do they think about Jesus? Do, do, they, do they love repentance? Do they understand their need for repentance of sin? Do they understand the grace and the mercy of Jesus and the free gift of God that cost him everything, but it's free to us? Do they understand the calling to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow him? Have they counted that cost? Are they coasting? Are they just going to church? Are they just not going to church? Like, what do they think about Jesus? What's your message? Like, do you talk about God with your family and with your friends? Do you talk about uh, what you heard on Sundays? Do you talk about what you hear on Wednesday nights? Do you, do you talk about the Bible? What's your, what's your message to people? Some of us, it's, I, I think even as a pastor, I think, man, look at all those little light bulbs. That's awesome. We, we, um, uh, we're all communicating via the campuses um, a couple days ago. And um, there was like, we, we all added up how many light bulbs had been turned in the first week. And there was like 125 to 150. And I was thinking, wow, but what does that mean? Well, it could just be an invite to church. It could be that they really shared some Jesus with someone. Like how many people know how, how to actually lead someone to a place where they say, make a decision. Will you actually make a decision? Some of us will talk about God in generalities. Some of us will, will speak of God mostly just in the sense of church, and we'll just say church, 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 thinking that that's God. Some of us will just invite people to church. All those things can be good, but are we giving people the full counsel of God and the full gospel? What's your message? Is it try harder, do more, get yourself together? What are you telling your friends and family when you talk about anything spiritual? Or are you telling them, just come to church, just come to church, but you've never told them about Jesus? Or maybe you say, just accept Jesus into your heart. I don't, I don't even see that in the Bible. I see you losing your life for him as he gave his life to you. If you don't talk about the perfect life of Jesus, 
And the fact that we're not perfect, the sacrificial death of Jesus and the fact that we deserved it, the life-giving resurrection of Jesus and the invitation to have eternal life in him, but only in him. There's a million other good things and great things that can be talked about with the gospel. But if, if your message isn't the good stuff, then it's no wonder our family and our friends and our coworkers are kind of clueless about what Christianity really is. It's not just the preachers on a Sunday who are influencing this generation for Christ. It's all of us as missionaries and whether we're actually giving them the gospel or a watered down version of it. What's your message? Let me read to you just a little bit. We'll move through these last couple points. Um, here's a, here's a picture of a kid here. See this nice little picture. It's blurry. Um, this was just from this weekend. A young man says tragedy struck in Cleveland, Ohio over the weekend when a local Salvation Army worker was shot dead while clutching his Bible. A horrific crime that reportedly unfolded while he was sharing the gospel with the assailant. He says, Jared Plessick, 21 years old, was found shot in the head on Saturday morning in the lobby of his apartment complex with police alleging that a 27-year-old man named William Jones is responsible. Plessick, who has worked as a Bible study teacher for the Salvation Army for a few years, was reportedly wearing his uniform when he was killed and was on his way to volunteer to collect money for the organization's annual Red Kettle campaign. Authorities also said that Plessick was sharing scriptures with the accuser when he was killed. He was described as a kind, loving, and compassionate young man. He spent his time mentoring local kids and had aspirations of saving money for a car so that he could one day bring people to church. The Salvation Army confirmed the tragic death to us on Sunday. Jared was an employee, a youth worker, and a church member of the Salvation Army, Temple Corps Community Center in Collinwood. Jared died as he lived Sharing God's love, the statement said. It goes on to say, Friends and loved ones said that Plessick would want them to forgive the person who killed him. And tears have flowed over the past few days as those who, whose lives Plessick touched remained in shock while also reflecting on all that he did for him. Major Daniel Alvirio of the Salvation Army said that Plessick was never afraid of the neighborhoods he would preach in He said that Plessick lived to teach people who God was and to love and care for people. I would talk to Jared often, and he would say that he was not afraid. I would say, Jared, be careful in the streets. He said, I'm not afraid. I know where I'm going. And for him, he would tell you to die is gain. Alvario said like he had no problem with the idea of being persecuted for the gospel. That's a 21-year-old kid. When we sign up to follow Jesus, we know he says, give your life to me. Most of us, especially in America, don't think we'll ever have to actually give our lives to him. But what a way to go. Preach, opening the Bible... And telling someone about Jesus and then they shoot you in your head. If you're going to show up in heaven, may it be, well, 
I literally gave them the good stuff. I gave them you, Jesus. Think about that embrace. On one hand, I, 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 I cringe to think of my son growing up and dying a horrible death at 21. On the other hand, I think for all of us, if you're going to live like that, what better way to go out than sharing the gospel until the last second? Paul says, I'm in prison because I preached Jesus to a group of people I used to hate. But I love them now. Verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Third thing we see, you got the position of a suffering servant, the preaching of the suffering servant or a suffering servant, and the power, number three, the power of a suffering servant. Paul saying, I was made a minister Number one, according to God's grace. The, the, the word grace, it means, it means that, that it's not just a free gift, but it means that there's something more. There's, there's, there, there's favor that was unmerited, but, but there's, there's, something, there's something in it. So many of us, we, we don't understand to, to share the gospel, to use even just your spiritual gifts in the church, to step out in faith. You are giving grace. You are building up the body of Christ. Some of us, when we look at our testimonies, we think, well, I don't have a jailhouse testimony. I just, I grew up in a church or I grew up kind of religious or I grew up whatever. And it's pretty tame and we don't want to share it with people. And we don't want to share how God has worked in our lives because it's not that radical, crazy story that some people have. And I'm telling you, it was given to you by the grace of God. It's all grace and it's all radical. The fact that God could save even a little religious church kid. Like there's, there's no one who is kind of close to God in the way that their parents raised them. You are either far from God or you are near God. And it's all about your faith in Jesus. Don't feel ashamed of your story. It's God's grace for you to share that. You see the message, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The power, it's not your power, it's the Holy Spirit in you. They are powerful. Even when you're weak, Paul says to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the more you mature, the more you understand. I'm not as cool as I thought I was, but Jesus is better than I ever imagined. And every day I'm learning that I don't deserve him. And he is so much more amazing than I even knew the day before. Some of us, uh, we don't feel like we have a good story, but even if we do feel like, oh, I got a testimony, we don't generally have the confidence, confidence to share God's work in our lives, do we? We struggle with it. We say, I feel insecure. Like, what if I push people away? What if I make them hate God more? Let me go back to what I just said. Lost people can't be any more lost. 
Theologically, the man who is the, living a quiet, simple life, but apart from Christ, is just as bad as the murderer who has been running 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. You can't push someone further. And that's a lie from the enemy that somehow you're going to make a mistake in the way that you share the gospel. It's not your power. It's the power of God. You could share the gospel to someone who looks like they're ready to, share, to receive the gospel. You can share it as perfectly as possible and they could say in their heart, no to Jesus. Or you can stumble through it with insecurities and like, yeah, no, I was just kind of this and then God kind of saved me. And you're like, you know what? Just don't even worry about this whole following Jesus thing. I'm just going to go over here. Sorry, I talked to you and bump into things and walk away and feel like I screwed that up and find out they bowed a knee to Jesus that day because it's God's power. This is such a beautiful reminder. We try, Tara and I try to to teach Jesus to Silas. We try to talk to him about Jesus and we read the Bible together and Tara does things throughout the day and I try to talk to him at night and we, we want him to want Jesus, but we see that he's a little sinner and he's a little rascal and he's broken and he needs Jesus and he often, when we talk about spiritual things, just does what four-year-olds do and he's just like, yeah, I don't want to talk about it and he just goes and does something else. You're like, man, he's just turned off like, does he, does he know anything about God and is he, is he, is he, walking in faith at all and you're just analyzing stuff from a 33-year-old point of view, but you're analyzing a four-year-old, it's really hard to tell what's going on. A lot of times I don't think he's retaining anything. Last night, uh, Tara was um, here at the church and I was at home with Silas and I was um, repairing some of the floor in the kitchen and Silas was eating uh, supper it takes like six hours for kids to eat supper if you didn't know that it just goes on and on and on um and anyway he was eating supper about on hour three it seemed like and he was just kind of talking and babbling and doing whatever four-year-olds do and then i heard him start singing he hates singing and he doesn't know many songs at all and it was like two songs he starts singing the song a song i've never heard before about how god is creator and God is powerful and he created all things and he created people and he loves people. And he started like going through the whole Bible in this song. And I looked over and he had his eyes closed. He's just like singing this song that I've never heard. And he goes into Luke chapter two and he sings this song like actually in tune, like about the angels showing up to Mary and then Joseph and their response and talking about Jesus and his birth and who he was. Like the dude was like preaching the gospel in the middle of this song. And I'm like, what is happening right now? I, I just acted like I didn't even see it. I was just like, um, um, like is, what's going on? I thought Tara would not believe what he's doing right now. And then afterwards, I, was, I looked at him when he was done. He opened his eyes and looked at me. And I said, son, that was the most amazing song I've ever heard in my life. I said, where did you hear it? He said, I didn't hear it anywhere. I just, um, he said, God put it together in my mind. And I was just like, what is happening right now? And I was just reminded once again. We influence people as disciple makers, but we can't change hearts and we can't do what only he can do. It says unsearchable riches, unsearchable riches. It means unable to comprehend after careful evaluation. That's what the Greek means. It means that after examination and evaluation that you are unable to, like you can't understand the gospel unless God opens your mind and heart spiritually to it. So keep that in mind when you're sharing your testimony and you're sharing the gospel that it's all dependent on Jesus. 
But that takes a huge load off of you because you can't screw it up. Let me encourage you. Um, I'll just throw this out there. We've got one, one last point before we leave, but um, we're going to be uh, changing our service times in February. And with that, we want to change some of the things we do on Sunday mornings. We want to have a prayer team where people can have prayer and, and the service. We want uh, to be showing more testimonies and life transformation since we'll have a little more time between services. And so we're going to be filming a bunch of testimonies, just a bunch of testimonies. And I talked to um, the camera guy the other day, Logan. He said, okay, now what, what exactly are you wanting? I just said testimony, just all of the testimonies. It's all of them. Do you, do you want to film your testimony? Do you want to testify to what God's done in your life? I encourage you. Step up, do that, come talk to us. If not on a camera, that's okay. Share it with somebody. Don't hold it in. Verses 10 through 13, Paul goes on and says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom, the word manifold means the many ways, the many forms, the various forms of God's wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So this is all happening to, to angels, to, to heavenly beings. So it's not just to other people, but through the church, God's going to be made known to the angels. The angels, Paul says in a couple places in the New Testament, that they're almost like they're waiting to see. God has revealed things to humans that he never even told them about. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Mind you, Hebrews can boldly approach the throne of grace through Jesus. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering. In the Greek, verses 2 through 12 were all one sentence. And so it's capped off with Paul taking a breath and giving us verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Last but not least, the purpose of a suffering servant. So we've got the position of a suffering servant, the preaching of a suffering servant, the power being the Holy Spirit, and now the purpose of a suffering servant. That purpose is to bring God glory. It's to bring God glory. Now, there's a couple ways that we're going to do that. And glory oft, ultimately means to reflect. If you want to bring God glory, you reflect God to the world. Two ways. Number one, we reflect him to others. And number two, he sees his reflection in us, meaning we mature, we become more like him. So number one, um, uh, we reflect him to others. So through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The whole world is watching. When Christians suffer, when their pain matters, the whole world the, the whole world knows that we are all suffering and they want to know, is there somebody or something worth suffering for? And ultimately, everyone knows there is heartache in life and life in general is hard, but is there something that's worth it? So I'm saying, maybe my career will be worth it. Maybe having a family will be worth it. Maybe traveling the country or the world. Maybe maybe. Another religion. But is there something that's worth the pain? And everyone, angels included, are looking at Christians as we go through suffering, as we go through persecution. Like, 
Why are they doing this? Maybe there's something to their lives. Maybe they know something we don't. This is one reason why the church always thrives in the midst of persecution. For 2,000 years, if you look back, Middle East, all over the world, when the church is scattered, the church spreads. When the church is persecuted, the church grows. Because in hardship, in suffering, Christians point to Jesus' suffering. And they say, why would you want to suffer? They say, why would he want to suffer? It's the love of God that compels me. It's the love of God. Number two, and last but not least, Paul is maturing. You look at him in this, he's, he's growing, he's maturing. In verse 13, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart. Not to lose heart. Some of us, we've lost heart. You see, God gets glory when you and I act like him, and suffering helps us to see like him. Let me, let me illustrate it just a little bit. For those of you who have kids and you struggle with your kids because they're disobedient and you're like, I don't know what to do with my teenager. I don't know what to do with my preteen. I don't know what to do with my toddler. I don't know what to do with my baby. Look, they're just rascals and I love them, but man, they're rebellion in so many ways. But then you see God as a father and you say, wow, I'm the rebellious child. And you connect with God in a way that you wouldn't otherwise connect. Some of you Um, You know, because you've been alone and you've um, experienced abandonment and you know the pain of separation from loved ones and then you realize this is what it's like for God the Father when I turn and I go and do my own thing. I neglect him. Some of us who have been mistreated in times where we felt like, you know what, I know I'm a sinner, but I don't think I deserved what just happened to me. And then we see Jesus dying on a cross, even though he was perfect. And we say he was mistreated by us, even though he didn't deserve it. And you connect with God in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise. Some of us have lost loved ones. People have died in our lives and it has broken our heart. And we say, God, why? How could you let this happen? And then you see a father and his son And him dying on a cross. And you say, not only did God himself experience that, but God sent him. How many of us going through our tragedies would say, yep, if it was my will, this would have taken place exactly like it happened. But God, heartbroken as a father, says, it was my will for him to die. And even for some of us, Maybe not yet, but maybe one day as we get close to death and we start to see death face to face and we say, you know what? The closer I get to death, the more the cancer takes over, the more I grow old, the more the sickness takes over, the more I fall apart, the more I realize that Jesus willingly did this. I've been trying my whole life to stop this from happening. And you connect and relate with God in a way you never would have otherwise. How many of you as parents know that you understand God in a way that you never would have understood if you weren't a parent? You mature, you grow, and you realize, in my suffering, I can relate to Jesus in a way that I never have. And so what he did on the cross for me means more than it ever did before. But if you spend your whole life trying to protect yourself from suffering instead of making your suffering matter, 
then you're pushing yourself away from relating to the very gospel you claim to have life in. He says, don't lose heart. The number one prescription pill out there, you know what it is? It's antidepressants. Some form or fashion. Because most people are trying to find life after they've lost heart. So many of us have become depressed. So many of us have said, I'm giving up. And so the world says, we've got pills for you. We've got motivational speakers. We've got self-help books. And Jesus is saying, I got life. And Paul's saying, don't lose heart. Some of you have lost heart. Personally, in your own walk, maybe as a disciple maker, sometimes you just question things and you think, what am I doing? Am I even doing anything that really matters? What, what's happening? Paul's saying, don't lose heart. Because ultimately, everything that you do and go through is meant to bring God glory. And one day, if your faith is in Jesus, you will be in heaven, where in proximity, you will be close to God, and you will be far from suffering. So when you know that's your reality, and this is a temporary home, and you say, if I only got a few years on earth, and ultimately I'm going to spend eternity in proximity close to God, then every suffering that takes place on earth that makes you press into God, you see as not fun, not easy, but a blessing. Because ultimately, it's better to press in to Jesus on earth than to go through trying to be comfortable, feeling like you don't need him. Because we do need him. Paul doesn't say, hey, don't talk about your pain. He doesn't say, don't pretend like it's not happening. Don't ignore it. No, he's real with his pain. He's real with his suffering. Does your suffering matter? If you're in Christ, it matters. I encourage you as we leave here tonight, if you're suffering, uh, talk to someone. Talk to someone who loves Jesus. Go to a grow group. Invest in people who, who want to not just talk in generality about suffering or not just see their life as a series of principles and things they've been through that, well, I can talk about anxiety because I got an anxiety disorder. I can talk about going to jail because I've been in jail. But they're willing to, to walk through the depths of their current suffering and the pains and the ups and the downs and the, the things they're learning and the things God's revealing and the things that they feel even on a daily basis. Because you'll find Jesus in the midst of the suffering. He's used to suffering. Let's pray.